Hoş geldiniz, which is welcome in Turkish. And you'll find out why I'm using Turkish. I'm using it appropriately for this episode. Welcome to another episode of Daddy Unscripted, the podcast. I am your podcast host and the creator, Tim Wheaton. I am very happy to have you all here tuning in. Not really tuning in because you're not really tuning a radio, but clicking in, I don't know, listening in to another podcast episode. Today, I am sitting with Stephen A. Cook, not to be confused with any other Stephen Cooks, not definitely not to be confused with Stephen A. Smith. Uh, this is Stephen A. Cook, who is the Eni Enrico Matai Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And yes, I did read that from his Twitter page, which you can find him at Stephen A. Cook. That's Stephen with a V, not a PH. He is also an author. He has a new book coming out in June that you can get in pre-order in May, which is going to be called False Dawn. He also is a fellow podcaster with his friend Brad. They have a podcast titled The Amen Corner, which is A-M-E-N. And it's a pretty cool conversational podcast between the two of them kind of musing. They're really fun to listen to, even for somebody who doesn't share a lot in common with some of their themes. They're from the East Coast. I'm from the West Coast. Uh, they're Yankees fans. I'm a Red Sox fan. Like, obviously, we don't meet eye to eye on some of these things. But between it all, or once the rubble settles on some of those things, we all love Van Halen, the three of us. My sit down with Steven today comes out of my conversation with Bruce Mendelson, which was my previous episode. So again, big thanks to that machine that keeps on leading me to new fantastic people. So thank you, Bruce, for uh, putting the two of us in touch. And I go into a good history of fatherhood and family and legacy and tradition with Stephen in regards to his own father, who passed away almost nine years ago. It will be nine years. Actually, by the time you hear this episode, it will have already been nine years. But uh, we had a very good conversation regarding uh, legacy and family and tradition and fatherhood and being a son to a fantastic father and trying to live up to that high standard that we picked up from our own dads uh, with Steven. So it's a very good conversation to be had here. I had really planned on only doing one episode with him, but I think that there was, I didn't expect it to go on as long as we did because Steven was going to be recording his own episode after this one, but we actually got some extra time in. Thank you, Steven. So there will be two episodes. So this first episode may be a little bit shorter than I had thought, but um, this is mainly about our family situation, dads, being sons, um, being dads now, and uh, a little, there's a little bit of baseball talk in here. I'm not going to deny it. So without a bigger introduction, let's get right to the episode with myself and Stephen A. Cook. Here it is. We are here this morning, very excited to be here with 
Stephen, do you go by Stephen A. Cook? Yeah, because there's a lot of Stephen Cooks out there, including some bodybuilder dude. So <laughs> I have to use my middle initial. There's a there's a computer scientist at the University of Toronto that like the Egyptian press is always using his picture when talking about me. So yeah, we I, I have to use the A to distinguish myself. It's strange. I also have a problem with customs and border protection because my name is Stephen Cook. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the uh, bodybuilder apparently is on no-fly lists. Well, there's someone There's someone with some combination of my three names um, who is not a fine, upstanding citizen. And as a result, every time I come into the country, not every time, every third or fourth time I come into the country, I get thrown into secondary screening. And they ruin oh, my, my badge. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, that happened to a friend of mine when we were trying to fly back from the Philippines and he he had a fairly con- his name's Michael Dean and I mean it's not that crazy of a name and right. yeah he was he needed a new pair of pants after all that was over we'll just put it that way it's strange to me I mean one time I asked him about it I, you know my name isn't you know Abu Saif al-Jihadi yeah. um, as terrible as it is that you know Muslims are being pulled aside but literally it's because of the combination of my three names and the fact that I travel a lot and they just constantly messing with me at the border. Uh, so we are here with Stephen A. Cook, not to be confused with any of the other Stephen Cooks. And I'll let you give your kind of title because I'm definitely not going to hit it on the head. So I'll let you do it. Sure. I'm the, uh, I'm the ENI Enrico Matai Senior Fellow from Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. When when I first read that, I read it thinking of my only experience with that name is from a movie somewhere. And I was thinking, so is his name Steven or is it Enrico? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do a lot of research. I, I will tell you that before I held this chair at the Council on Foreign Relations, I had another named fellowship. And from time to time, I would get emails from soon to be college graduates uh, calling me Mr. Sabah rather than <laughs> it was uh, amusing and, and actually quite sad that that soon to be college graduates couldn't read carefully. Right. You would uh, say, you know what, you're actually I'm sorry to say you're going to have one more year of college. Yeah, right. <laughs> you have to repeat your senior year of college. <laughs> yeah. So I was told about you through my episode 26 guest, uh, Bruce Mendelson, who quickly contacted you after we had our discussion and told me immediately that you would be one of the first people he would think of for me to talk with. So I'm very happy that you were on board with it. And I appreciate your time. Oh, it's my it's my absolute pleasure. And uh, many thanks to Bruce for recommending me. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a, a great guy. guy. Yeah. So let's go into your family history. I know you kind of very briefly told me in one of our emails about your dad, but let's go back in and I will sit back and enjoy the story of your family history with regards to your parents and maybe grandparents, et cetera. Thanks. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's fortuitous that we're doing this on February 25th because it was um, nine years ago uh, this coming Tuesday that my father passed away very suddenly. Um, he uh, he was puttering around 
my parents' house on a Sunday morning, um, as he usually did, uh, quite early, um, before my mom had gotten out of bed and, uh, she heard him fall and, and went running and, um, uh, found him on the floor and couldn't get him off the floor and called the ambulance. And, uh, he was, uh, he was transported to the, uh, obviously the emergency room and then the intensive care unit. I was, um, I was away. I was, uh, sorry, <laughs> still nine years later, it gets a little emotional to think about it. Um, I was actually in Cairo, um, someplace that over the last decade or so has really become a second home to me. And, um, this is, you know, any kind of phone call like this is, is absolutely horrific, but to be, you know, almost 6,000 miles away from home and, and you pick up the phone and you hear your mother's voice and you almost immediately know that there's something wrong. And she told me that I had to come home as soon as possible. So I made it home, uh, Relatively quickly, um, I got a lot of help getting on the next flight out and um, arrived back in New York. And the last, you know, thing I saw my father, he was on uh, a breathing machine and we had a family meeting and decided that there was um, the best and most humane thing to do was to um, was to turn those machines off. And that was I can't believe it. Nine years ago, it feels like a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. What was my father? was like Superman to me. Um, and I, th- I suppose that's the case with, with all little kids. He could do anything. He could fix anything. He could, you know, he could fix my bike. He could uh, pick me off the ground when I fell. He could make things right at school. And then as I got older, he could get me out of various and sundry jams. I, I, I remember I was um, a part of my history was not funny at the time, but it's funny now. I was um, I was arrested in Washington D.C. for disorderly conduct over arguing over a parking ticket with a Metropolitan Police officer when I was 24 years old, and um, <laughs> it was pretty. It was n- now it's funny, but at the time it was quite scary. I mean, and of yeah. course, my personality is like that to argue with a police officer, and he, you know, he. he I wasn't the spoiled kid who got out of everything, but it was absurd that I was arrested and he kind of got me. And it was, I had this image of him in my head and and still do, but towards the end of his life, um, we had a much more tempestuous relationship. And I think it's because he was getting older. Now he died relatively young. He died when he was 72. Mm -hmm. Um, But I saw that he was slowing down. He was he had some health problems with high blood pressure, macular degeneration, and I could see how he was responding to it. And he was obviously worried about it, um, but it really scared the daylights out of me. And then he mm-hmm. he also resisted help. And, you know, he had macular degeneration. And when when my wife and I would be visiting my parents in New York, I'd say, hey, dad, I'll drive. And he would get angry at me. And, and I, you know, in retrospect, I could understand why he got angry at me because he must have been so frightened by his physical deterioration or what, what he must have seen, you know, coming. And, and from my perspective at the time, it's like, geez, you know, if someone told me I would drive them around, I'd be, I'd be more than happy about it. Mm-hmm. So there was, we had this, this tension and, and this fighting. And of course we have... We have very similar kind of personalities. We're very, we both run very, very hot. 
And that's one of the things that I remember from my childhood. And although, you know, look, he was, and in death, he seems wiser to me than he was in life. I mean, I resisted him as all young men and teenagers will do with their fathers, I think. Um, but when I think back on it, he was in, he was incredibly wise and that every now and again, I'll just get stopped in my tracks and say, wow, you know, daddy said that and he was so right about that. And I was this young guy who thought that I knew everything, but he actually knew exactly what he was talking about. And I, I try to hold on to that, but he was, he was really a, a special father who instilled in me the values um, that are obviously dear to me. I mean, both my parents, not to give my mom short shrift, but and I've thought about a lot when it comes to parenting my two, my two little girls and the way I conduct myself professionally, um, a very, very strong and keen sense of justice, um, what's right, what's morally right. You know, one of his former law partners, associates, whatever you want to call it, um, said to me, she now lives in, in Paris. And whenever I'm, I'm, I make my way through there, we get together for dinner or a glass of wine. And she said to me once, you know, your father was the most moral man I ever met in, in my life. Mm -hmm. And he, he once said to me, he said, look, if I didn't have any scruples, we'd be fabulously wealthy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he, he was a, a, a really a, a giant and, you know, he could do everything. Um, and one of the differences though, in terms of parenting is my father, and maybe this is a function of, of me as a kid or, or my children, my father taught me everything. He taught me how to swim. He taught me how to dive. He taught me how to ride a bike. He taught me how to play ping pong, how to throw a ball. And I sense he was incredibly, incredibly patient. I have no such luck with my daughters. Um, and I think one, you know, sometimes they resist daddy just because. And I think the other thing is, is that I do not have it in me to well up the kind of patience that he had for um, my sister and me. I don't know where that came from. And he was an incredibly, incredibly busy um, person. I have these memories of being very, very little and him sitting in a chair in, in a three-piece suit. Like he had come through the front door of the house and I was little, I was already in bed and he was in a three-piece suit. And of course, this is the 70s. So it was a three-piece suit, one of those fat ties. And he wore, I remember during this period, he wore like a pocket watch across his, the vest of his three piece suit. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And he sat in one of the little chairs in my bedroom and read to me. And I can only imagine this was before he had dinner or anything like that. And he was always, you know, Johnny on the spot to give, to give me a bath. Um, I have very little recollection of my mom giving baths, but I have recollections of my dad and he was incredibly, I mentioned he had a, he had a law partner, but he was not part of a big firm. It was essentially him. And he had a bunch of associates. And now also, again, as an adult and, you know, uh, you know, I'm my, you know, mid to late forties, I've got a mortgage, uh, two car payments, yeah, saving yeah. for college and so on and so forth. He was a sole practitioner lawyer. He, he had to, he had, and my mom didn't, my mom had worked and then didn't work and then went back 
to school to get a ma- uh, another master's degree before she started working here. And he did this all on his own. And so it kind of blows my mind from time to time when I think about how he was able to do all of these things and be the in- attentive father he was. He never missed uh, a Little League game, a soccer game. He never, ever missed any of that stuff unless it was like a high school soccer game on a Wednesday at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. I travel, I, I, I write, I do things that sometimes are not as scheduled and I'm forever guilty knowing that my father never missed those games that I, there are Saturdays where I don't make it to soccer and, and, and Sundays I don't make it to softball and that I've missed a, 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 a you know, a, a parent's day at, at, you know, at ballet and stuff. And those things, they bother me. They make me, they make me feel bad. Um, and it, not only because I think the girls obviously want to be there, but I just can't sometimes figure out what, how he was able to manage it because I just yeah. feel sometimes overwhelmed by, by, by life that way. So as far as, you know, you asked about my family history, I didn't really know my father's father. He died when I was, four years old. Mm-hmm. But from what my mom tells me, my dad talked about him. He, my, my dad and my grandfather were, were, were quite close, but I don't remember long conversations with my father about my grandfather, but my mother always talked about what a, a, a charming and lovely and interesting man he was. Um, my father had a lot of that charm. He also had an explosive temper. I remember that growing up. Um, and I still have, I have it. It's not as bad. And I've tried to keep it under control, but my father had a lot, a lot of that charm as well. But he, again, was also, I think he, he, he had some anger towards his mother and his father that he hadn't worked out. And that was, I think, part of the reason why he had an explosive temper. Mm-hmm. I think it also fit the fact that he was a lawyer and, and, and a litigator. He, he liked, he liked the fight. Um, as my sister said, he, at his funeral, he, he fought the good fight. He fought the bad fight and he bought, he often fought the fight that didn't need to be fought at all. So, um, so there, he was a, a, a complicated, but in my mind, and I don't think I'm just, just because we're coming up on nine years after his death. Um, I don't think I'm romanticizing it. I just, I, 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 I've, I've gone kind of full circle. He was a giant when I was four and five years old. And now he's a giant again when I'm 48 years old. The, the very sad thing is, is that he's not around for me to hear that. Right. And I'm not sure that if he was here, I would have that kind of perspective. We'd probably be having a, tempestuous relationship because at this point he would be, you know, 80 years old and probably having more physical and health problems. And that would be freaking me out more, which would be manifesting itself more in this kind of edgy anger and tempestuous relationship we had. Yeah. It's funny because I, I have a similar kind of situation with my dad who same boat. And just like you said, I know a lot of kids have that feeling about their dads and like when you said that I kind of do feel I I I don't like saying it this way but I kind of do feel badly for the kids who don't who don't look at their dad with that superhero or even like ability to do all these things kind of look in their eye like 
I, I just can't imagine being be like right. Yeah, like being so just not, I don't know, I respected or whatever you would say, but I'm my dad is one of those guys who people loved and he was he was a pastor of a church and he also was a veterinarian so he was helping people all the time you know I remember when I was a kid so many times that people would be calling for whether it was spiritual help or animal help and right. he would be you know leaving leaving us shortly after dinner or whatever to take care of something for somebody and that was always a bummer when he left but now I I think uh, because when I see people who knew him and um, my voice is similar to my dad's, I look a lot like my dad did. And so people who knew him, uh, it's not uncommon for them to start talking with me and just to already see tears well up in their eyes because of how much I'm reminding them of him. And wow, they usually... Yeah. And they talk about, you know, what a great guy he was and that he was, you know, somebody who completely changed their lives. And my dad passed away in 1990. So it's been a much longer time for me, but it's still, you know, I have that outlook of him. I think his uh, physical depreciation went fairly rapidly he he died of uh, brain cancer and his symptoms started probably in january of the year that he died in november so it was kind of fast but those last uh five months i would say were a a decline to about as low as it can go you know i mean to him being in a wheelchair and not being able to do anything, you know, having to bathe him and take care of him after he went to the bathroom and that kind of stuff. And the humility that I'm sure he had to like choke down as hard as you can choke that down as a, as a father and, you know, seeing him in the hospital at the end. And, um, it was, it was one of those things that I could, I really, really struggled with that, especially as a 17 year old at the time. I can't even imagine. I cannot you know. even imagine. So, but now, you know, I, I definitely hold him in that same esteem that I did all my life. And all, not all of my thoughts go back to that time, obviously. And it is, it is something that I am consciously thinking of not every minute as I'm parenting, but thinking about, you know, his legacy and who he was not only to our family and to my mom and to us kids, but to other people as well. So I, I definitely, that resonates with me when you talk about (laughs) thinking about the games that you're missing or whatever. And uh, it's good to have that bar, but it also can be a struggle to, um, try to be what they were. That's exactly right. But you know, there's two things that you said just now that really struck me in relation to my own relationship with my father. One is, you know, your this this situation that you describe at the your the end of your father's life just 
is, I, I just can't even imagine that. I can't imagine how my father would have handled that. And I can't imagine how I would have. I mean, I, I probably, honestly, I might've run away <laughs> to be mm-hmm. completely. I was so, again, my, he was, he was not as healthy um, but he was not by any, he, he there was no hint. I, although the, I, the night before I left on this trip to Egypt, I said to my mom, he doesn't look well, he needs to go to the doctor. But there was really no hint that he was going to literally, you know, drop dead. Right. And his, he, two of his closest buddies said to me when, after the funeral, I said, you know, Stephen, it was a good death. Just imagine your father um, surviving a stroke, uh, what that would have been like for, for him who was really full of life and, and for everybody around him. And, and that's true. So I, again, I, I can't imagine what you and your, your family went through. And in a way I'm, I'm, it's hard to say it this way, but I'm thankful for that quote unquote good death. The mm-hmm. other thing, but I think more important is the way in which your father touched people's lives. I mean, he spent his life caring for people caring for their animals, but also caring for people. And by caring for their animals, they was caring for people too. That's extraordinarily special. And no wonder why people are emotional when they, when they see you and they speak with you. I've had a experience. I look somewhat like my dad. I mm-hmm. took a picture with my nephew the, the yesterday and we looked at it and I said, geez, I look exactly like my father, but <laughs> that's not what, what trip people up. I have a bunch of friends from college who have, over the years said to me, you have no idea the impact that your father had on my life. Mm. Whoa. You know, one, one of my buddies essentially lived with us, lived with my family during a Christmas break because things were, were, weren't great um, with his family. And I, when my father died, he, he flew in, the only flights he could get were same day flights. He flew back and forth to San Francisco just to go to my father's funeral. And an old girlfriend remarked to me recently, I think I sent her an email to wish her well or something. And I said, you know, please send my regards to your parents. And she said, you know, I was thinking a lot about your dad recently and he had such an impact on my life. And this has happened with my sister and, and friends of hers from college or, or high school or wherever. Um, and these, and the two people have reached out to me. Those aren't the only two. And I actually, I'm going to see these two people in the coming months. I, I, as you know, I have a, a book coming out. I'm going to be going out on book tour and I'm going to be in the cities where these people, I need to set aside time. And I've already told them because I need to hear more about this from them. Mm-hmm. Um, what it was like not to be Michael Cook's son and daughter, but what kind of impact he had on those people's lives. It really, really interesting to me. And also not just interesting from an intellectual level, but something that I want to impart to my daughters. Um, my older daughter was two and a half when he died, three, and my, not even three. And my little one wasn't even born. Mm-hmm. So she has no, no memory. Yeah. That's the, with my kids, they, I mean, didn't even come close. I have a eight year old and a four year old. So, you know, that was part of what kind of brought this whole podcast and um, before that blog into being was partially me kind of wanting to capture that in my own family. And I still want to sit, unfortunately, you know, I can't do an episode with my dad, but I kind of want to sit down with my mom 
and kind of make an episode about my dad out of conversations with my mom and maybe some of my siblings and some other people. But it sounds really cool, actually. I want to capture this and document it. And then it became a thing where I wanted to help others do that. And I, and I don't know, you know, out of the people that I've sat with, I don't know how many of them have their kids or family members listening to these, but a lot of these stories are going back to those times that don't have the documentation of their family life going on like we do today. And so, especially, you know, for me or for you, my, my dad was born in 29. My mom was born in 31. And, you know, one of the things, because I also do photography and I talk with... I know, I saw, I looked at beautiful stuff, your photography. Oh, thank you. And, you know, we have that documentation of everything now. And so I, I wanted to open this up for other people and as well as to learn things for myself and for the listeners of these relationships and... Uh, hopefully for the men that are listening that are dads or are new dads that are thinking about the legacy that they are potentially building with their kids. And like you are very astutely bringing up with all of these other people that they are coming into contact with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's uh, that kind of documentation thing is, so incredibly important it, every year on, on, and this is just one little thing, but it bothers me every year on the anniversary of my father's death. My sister and I, you know, post some photos of him. My sister mm-hmm. often will post, write something about him. I just post the photos of him, just one on Facebook. I know he was uh, quite obviously he was important to me, but I know he was important to a, a lot of my friends. So I post and again, I, I'm still trying to work through that and, and want to understand it better. But I'm finding as the years have gone on, I'm starting to run out of photos of him because he was always the guy behind the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ha- we must have in my in my parents' basement ten thousand slides that he took, which is really a documentation of our life. Now, who has slides? Who even? I don't yeah. even think the machine he has. Yeah. That's still in my parents' basement, even works. But so we're going to have to do something with it. And I think my mom, I said, we just haven't been able to deal with it. But this is a documentation of his life, our lives, our lives that I very much would like for us to to go through. And I think even while he was alive, sometimes he would get frustrated with things. And I remember my mom telling a story where they were looking through slides and maybe they had just been on a trip. They were, they traveled uh, all over the world. My parents were, were not wealthy. Um, I mean, solidly upper middle class, you know, my father paid for, you know, college out of his checking account and so on and so forth. Of course, those were the days when college didn't cost $65,000 a year. But, um, you know, the, my mom grew up in a three room apartment in the Bronx. My father, also grew up in the Bronx. His family was, you know, slightly better off and whatever. And they, but they really made a life for themselves, you know, kind of the American dream. They, they moved from the city, they moved to the suburbs and, 
you know, my father was a professional. My mom was a professional. They drove nice cars and they traveled. And she tells the story about how they were looking at slides. I don't think it must not have been from one of their European trips, but something. And he was lamenting something. And she said to him, have some perspective. Think about how successful a life you've you've actually had. Um, and she went through all of those things. And one of the things that I think is important in, in having that documentation is understanding from whence we have come and, and the life that, that they made together and what he was able to do coming from extremely modest, uh, extremely modest backgrounds. Um, and to date, you know, we don't, we have the stories. My sister knows the stories and the connections better than, than, than I do. Um, but to have that kind of photographic kind of documentation of my father's life and along with my mom, I think is incredibly important. I remember after he died, I had, I got it in my head that I was going to take my, my, we had the video camera. You know, remember everybody had those video cameras 10 years ago oh, yeah. before the iPhones took, you know, before the iPhone and before the iPhone took great video. And I was going to go to the important people in my father's life and just have them talk to me about him. Of course, Mm-hmm. You know, little kids work. What I never, I never got around to doing it, and now I look forward to somehow taking these slides, turning them into photo, photos if they are still in good condition, so that we have some sort of documentation. I also remember my mom going through his papers, and I think she still is. And he was extremely creative. You know, he was he was a lawyer, but. He would have been a fantastic journalist. He was an English major in college mm-hmm. and um, he wrote beautifully and she's kept actually, you know, a lot of the legal papers she, she you know, she found she doesn't need, they need to be shredded and so on and so forth. But she's been going through things very, very carefully because there is some really fantastic work, letters and stuff that he wrote, letters to members of Congress, Senate and so on, where people actually responded. And so this kind of correspondence and I remember we were in the car together and my mom was driving and the tears coming down um, my cheeks and saying, please, please, please save all of that because I need for there to be evidence of his existence in this world mm-hmm. other than a gravestone. And so that hits me really, the, the photographs, the, the papers, those things hit me really, really hard. Because he was so important to me. And I think as I've implied, there is this fear, this feeling that I don't necessarily measure up on the fatherhood scale. It's a he's a a bar to strive towards, which I don't think I ever really meet. Um, But that he we shouldn't he shouldn't be lost in the ether. It's it's enough that my my little one, my eight year old never never met him. Um, so I think that as my wife and I get older for my daughters to have a sense of, of our history, that to have not only the photographs, but also the papers and especially the fun stuff that he did. I mean, he was a goofball too. Mm -hmm. To have that kind of stuff. And then you're, you're talking about this documentation and the the photographing of, you know, the, the one photograph of your mom when she was pregnant and your, 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 suggesting to your clients that maternity photos are important. They are. They're incredibly important. Yeah. Something that I think about a lot too, because it's, 
you know, the times that I've told my eight year old about her popo and, you know, she'll, she'll listen and she'll take it in. And I know I keep thinking you're, you're 10, 10 to 20 years off from really caring about this. You know, it's, it's that reminder and kind of continuing to sow the little seeds for when they are at that point where they are really like, okay, I, I want to know about who my grandparents were and who my great grandparents were. And that's when, you know, that collection becomes that much more important that they are able to easily tap into and, and make some sense of, you know, because if, if it's, it's very doomy gloomy and I think about this stuff and it doesn't mean I'm thinking about my death all the time, but you know, if I have this box of stuff of my dad's, um, in my garage and I don't live to tell that story to my kids, my kids are doing what, what we were maybe doing with our grandparents stuff and picking through it and saying, Hmm, I have no idea what this is. Right. It looks cool, but I don't, you know, and it could be this, it could be that infamous pocket watch from Pulp Fiction you know, that came over in Christopher Walken's dad's butt. But yeah. that is that is an unbelievable scene. I like. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there are these things that that we don't know about or we don't document what that uh, importance of it is. And, you know, like I have I have tapes. These have been like one of the big things for me of my dad, uh, because they recorded a tape of the church services when he was pastor. And oh wow, this is dating back to, you know, his church started back in the seventies in Laguna beach where I was, which is my hometown. And so it was a lot of, it was during the Jesus movement and it was during, you know, the kind of near the end of the hippie movement and um so there were a lot of hippies and fishermen in the church and it started out and they would meet like literally in in the woods and just kind of sit around and talk and sing and read the bible and whatever and uh then eventually it became a church and i had i had this big group of tapes which unfortunately i think one of my brothers tossed when we downsized my mom's home. And so I lost this big section, but I was able to procure some from one of the other pastors in the church somewhat recently. And so I have at least a, a sizable amount of tapes from like, have, have you listened to them? Yes. And I, and I'm actually looking at um, here at my desk, I have two of them. And um, because I was going through the process of, transitioning them to digital and it's been one of those things that I've wanted to do for these other people that he meant something to and create either a website or you know lately I've been thinking a podcast might be the easier thing for them to tap into and make each tape its own episode right Right. But it's a huge process. I mean, it's yeah. that is the ultimate of time sucks. Like, 
having to put this tape in because you have to do it in real time. So you're having to let this thing run for an hour and a half and flip the tape and do all of that. But let me, let me ask you a question. If only for my own kind of, what's it going to look like for me down the road? Your father passed away, what, 27, 26 years ago. Yeah. My, my dad passed away nine years ago and I just had this experience. Um, my, in early January, was one of my nephew's bar mitzvahs. And the kind of thing that that the big thing they do at bar mitzvahs these days is they have what's called a montage. It's like, this is your life, 13 year old. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of documents your life. It's a, it's set to music and so on and so forth. And so it was time for the montage at my nephew's bar mitzvah. And it starts. And the first thing you see is a video of my father holding my nephew within, you know, minutes after he was born. And it's a video and he's talking. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That was the first, I have not seen video or heard his voice since I called and said, okay, I'm getting on the plane in, you know, late February, 2008. I'll talk to everybody when I come back and spoke to him. And he said, I love you. And, and that was it. But I have not. And it was like he was in the room again. And it like it was just, whoa, it really, it, you know, we had a great time that night. But that moment, it caught me and kind of stopped me in my tracks. And when you listen to those recordings of your dad, now it's been, you know, longer. Do you, does that, does that still happen to you? I mean, it's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like being in the room. He was there. It wasn't even like a ghost, you know, he was there. Right. And and the first time was, gosh, it, it wasn't too much longer after he had died that I was kind of going through and listening to them. Uh, and then there was a long gap. And it was maybe two years ago that I heard it again. And so it was easily a 10 to 15 year gap between me hearing his voice and it it stops time. Yeah. You know, it, it just, it stops time. It kind of cores you out and it's that breath between it's it, for me, it was the elongated breath between shock of something and wanting to just sit in the corner and suck your thumb and cry basically, right. you know? Right. And it, and it was, it was that, during the whole thing, you know, and then eventually, like, I think once I stopped it, it, the times that I kind of sat and thought about it, I would, I would cry. But, um, otherwise it was just like, it it was time stopping. I don't, I don't know how else to describe that. So, and I don't think that that goes away and I don't want it to, you know, I've talked with some other guys who have lost their dads and I've, you know, obviously I'm not, thinking about him every single day when I wake up and I'm, it's not as raw as the beginning, but I don't want the welling up of tears when I'm thinking or talking about him to ever be something to stop. And I'm, I'm glad that that emotional rawness is always barely scabbed over. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a, it's a good point. I'm, I'm not sure I ever want to get used to it. Yeah. 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 So, uh, 
I don't know where to take it from there. Yeah, this is this is this is heavy. <laughs> this is a little different from my own podcast. I have to tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm used to hearing you guys laughing so much, and um, we're definitely in a different in a place. different direction. Yeah. yeah. Our podcast for your listeners, um, which we call the Amen Corner, is a. Um, it basically the underlying theme of it is how did we get here? Um, mm-hmm. We still think of each other as, you know, 15, 16 year old guys. And now we're, you know, slouching towards middle age. Um, given the the politics of the country, I think we've, we've moved a little bit away from that in order to talk about politics, but Brad and I are quite interested in politics and international affairs. And so, we have been, we call ourselves the conscience of the nation, and um, we've been deconstructing what's going on in, in, in the country, interspersed with a lot of uh, tremendous laughter, um, some clean humor, some not so clean humor. Um, but it is, it's it's actually rather cathartic. Um, Brad also um, lost his father not that long after my father died. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had conversations about this. And, you know, the the tagline of our of our podcast is, you know, what does, you know, fatherhood, Judaism, Israel, the Yankees and Van Halen have to do with every, with each other. And we, and yeah. it says everything, everything. Find that everything. And it really does. It really, yeah. it really, really does. I remember reading that off the bat. I think that was one of the first things that I read after Bruce mentioned you and I, and I may have read it out loud to <laughs> my friend and coworker, who we, uh, I, I live a pretty good life at my job. My brother is a veterinarian who f- obviously followed in my dad's footsteps. Right. And I am the office manager of his animal hospital. So I get oh. to see my brother every day and work with him. And my friend since, like one of my best friends since 1992 or three, he and I share an office and we get to, you know, we have a lot of work that we have to do, but we also get to joke around with each other all day and, um, you know, listen to music and we listen to quite a bit of Van Halen oh, here in our it. office. Love it. Um, and I am surrounded by all of my, uh, Red Sox memorabilia. So when I read that out loud to him, he said, Oh, you're never going to be able to talk with that guy. <laughs> you know, my dad to bring this back to the, to the, this theme. My dad grew up six blocks from Yankee Stadium. Oh, wow. So I am essentially genetically encoded to be a Yankee right. fan. And yeah. when you when you go into my parents' basement, which was my father's man cave before that awful term was ever <laughs> created, there are files and files and files of Yankee memorabilia oh, wow. in kind of plastic sleeves. Mm-hmm. Things that, you know, the Yankees newsletter from 1940, whatever. Wow. I have st- seats from the original Yankee Stadium. You know, they sold them off when they built the new stadium across the street right. in the Bronx. Yeah. But when they refurbished the original stadium in the mid-1970s, he had a friend who was an engineer who was working on the project who said, oh, why don't you come to the Bronx and you can pick out some seats because we're switching out the seats. And I remember being freezing, freezing, freezing cold day and sitting in the back seat of my father's Chevy with my sister and going to the Bronx and picking out stadium seats. 
My wow. sister now has two. I had two. I remember my father, he always wanted one of the original ticket booths, but uh, I don't think he could ever figure out how to get it. And I think my mom probably would not have been happy with a ticket booth in her backyard. Right. <laughs> wow, that would be amazing. But, but the Red Sox, you're from California. Yeah. No? I know, I know. It's a, it's a very long story. And, and the basis of it really is... Um, that I loved rooting against my dad and my dad was a hometown fan. You know, he loved the, the Dodgers. He loved the angels. He, he actually loved the Dodgers from when they were in Brooklyn, which is kind of funny that, and good for him that they moved out here to LA, but he loved all of the local teams, loved the Lakers, and so I loved the Celtics. Yes, that's funny. And so that's I great. basically just went against him in that. It's interesting, that dynamic. My 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 sister, who has two boys, is married to a guy from Boston, and they live in New York. Mm. But my, my nephews are all, you know, New England sports fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I married a, a woman from Boston. Uh, huh. she, it's like... It's like Sunni and Shia here, you know, Um, but uh, actually Sunni and Shia get along a lot better than Yankee fans and Red Sox fans, as you probably know. So uh, it makes for an interesting dynamic. I know my older nephew used to give my father a hard time about the Yankees and stuff like that, I think. (laughs) It was hard for my father to contain himself. I I always always, pubs, the Yankees suck. I tell everybody, though, that some of my if I'm not having a conversation about baseball with a fellow Red Sox fan, I would want to have a conversation with a Yankees fan because right. some well, of my best baseball talks have been with Yankee fans. Right. Because, you know, Yankee, there's the there's with both. I think with both franchises, there is that steeped in tradition. There is this right. desire to be deeply knowledgeable about the team and then people translate that into being thinking that they're deeply knowledgeable about the game and so on and so forth um it's it does make for some from some interesting conversations about who's a better shortstop who's a better center fielder i remember the one the one and only time i went to i went to fenway park my father-in-law took me it was freezing day in may I think I was wearing like a ski jacket and even maybe even ski pants. And this is May in New England. And uh, they have their mascot, the green monster, goes up and down and high fives people. Yeah, Wally. Wally, right, Wally. Wally the green monster. And um, I was sitting on the edge, on on the aisle, and he came up to high five me and I motioned him to get closer to me. You know where the mouth is. That's where the guy behind the thing. And I said, "Yeah, my name is Bucky Dent." And he started pounding on me. It was really funny. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it was great. It was pretty cool. <laughs> so thank you again for um, taking time out on your Saturday morning, and uh, possibly apologies to Brad if I delayed you guys at all. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. He'll, he'll get over it. I'm yeah. sure. And there you have it. The first of two episodes with Stephen A. Cook. And I'm very happy that I was able to sit down and talk with him about all of these things today. Again, you can find him on Twitter at Stephen A. Cook. That's Stephen with a V 
and make sure you have that A in there or you're going to get into some either a bodybuilder's account or somebody else's account. So make sure that it's Stephen A. Cook with a V and you can find his blog and everything else he has connected there. You also find the connection to his previous books that he wrote and the one that is going to be coming out pretty soon in May for pre-order or June for its official release called False Dawn. Uh, so again, thank you very much for being a part of this, Stephen. And you can find Daddy Unscripted as well on Twitter, Daddy Unscripted. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. You can send me an email at daddyunscripted at gmail.com and help keep these uh, fantastic guests coming in and these people that I have no connection to but actually now do. I love that. I love um, meeting these great people that I never would have been connected to otherwise. So again, big thanks to the world of Twitter that really has kind of pushed a lot of this along outside of my own bubble of people that I know. So make sure you send in those emails. Uh, You guys, I would love to get a review or a rating on iTunes from you. Um, You can find the Daddy Unscripted podcast also on Google Play. Uh, We are on Stitcher Radio. You can go to the website, daddyunscripted.com, and find some of the older blog posts. And uh, on the blog post there, I will have links directly to all things Stephen, so you'll be able to find them there as well. So, So make sure you check out that next episode, which should be out in a week or two, but it'll probably be one week before I release that second episode with Stephen A. Cook. So thanks again for listening, you guys. Make sure you tell your friends and family about this cool daddy unscripted podcast that isn't just for dads. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in here, I think, for other people as well. So thank you for spreading that around and uh, keep an eye out for that next episode.